in your dreams? While you're awake? Dead people like in graves and coffins? Walking around like regular people. They don't see each other. They only see what they want to see. They don't know they're dead. How often do you see them? Hey, yeah, uh, the ushers wanted me to let someone know you left your snowmobile double parked out front. So thank you for coming. Uh, you love that song we did during the offering, the I Am Counting? I love that song. It gets stuck in my head. As I was, uh, let me tell a story on Joel here real quick. Uh, I was mentioning to him that I couldn't get it out of my head last week, and it was driving me crazy. He said, and a little bit later, I get an email. I said, maybe this will help. He attached the MP3 of the song to it. So, <laughs> so say an extra prayer for Erica this week, okay? So. Anyway, hey, we are um, knee-deep in our series, Miracles, and uh, just to kind of review a little bit, a miracle is defined as uh, an event that appears inexplicable by the laws of nature and so is held to be supernatural in origin or an act of God. That's a lot of fancy talk for saying this stuff don't happen much. The uh, Greek word for miracle um, is the word dunamis. That's the word that was translated as miracle, and that uh, means power or strength. It happens to be the root word that we get our English word dynamite from, and it refers to an explosive power. Um, Jesus Christ displayed his power, his explosive power, by performing miracles. Uh, He would intervene with nature to heal, to feed people, to do calm storms, all these things. Um, And it displayed his power and also proved that he was who he claimed to be, sort of his credentials. Well, two weeks ago, Donnie, when he kicked off the series, talking about um, Jesus miraculously healing a man that had been born blind. And the takeaway from that message was this idea that problems are opportunities for me to experience God's work in my life. It's a really important takeaway there. I hope you guys hung on to that. Last week, he talked about uh, Jesus calming a storm just by speaking to it, you know, by telling it to knock it off. And the big idea from that message was that when I'm in a storm, there's more going on than what I can see. And God is at work even when I don't see him. Two really important takeaways that I, I hope you were kind of working into your life at this point. So before I go to uh, this week's miracle, I want to refer back to the clip we showed you just a, a moment or two ago from the film The Sixth Sense. Now, be honest, how many of you have actually seen this movie? Yeah, okay, there we go. Yeah, it, it kind of gets to you. Now, I'm a, a horror movie aficionado. I, I, I love that kind of stuff, and I didn't find this film all that scary, but I did find it really creepy. The, the, the thing that is creepy in this film is that this little boy can see things that no one else can see. Now, what's this famous line? I can see, that's right, you're supposed to whisper it. Joel got it right. Okay, so I can see dead people. There's something really horrifying about this idea that I I could see the dead walking around among the living. You know, it's a horrifying idea. And apparently it's also a profitable one because Hollywood keeps recycling the whole zombie thing. You know, you got Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead, Vacation of the Dead. Uh, You know, I don't know. It's a... But uh, the sobering truth here is that we live in a reality that is much more horrifying than a horror flick. See, I see dead people too. You do as well. I see them when I'm at the mall, when I'm at a restaurant, if I'm going to grab a cup of coffee at Starbucks in the evening or the morning commuter rush down 540. 
Uh, I bet you see lots of them in the cube farm at your office. In fact, I'm willing to bet that many of you saw a dead person in the mirror as you got ready to come here today. I'm talking about folks who are dead while they think they're alive. They look alive on the outside, but on the inside, they're dead. For example, some people are dead to relationships. You know, maybe that's you. Somehow you've managed to estrange yourself from your entire family. Or maybe you were fatally wounded in a friendship that went south. Um, And now, because of fear, because of hurt, you're really, you just refuse to open yourself up to anyone anymore, to trust anyone with your heart. And so you die inside alone. Maybe you're dead in marriage. You know, maybe you're just one half of a dead marriage, but in, in either case, the marriage has flatlined a long time ago. Your spouse knows it's cold. You know it's cold. You live in a house like roommates. Uh, There's no joy. There's no emotional intimacy. There's no communication. No real love or affection expressed. Maybe you just recently dumped that last shovel full of dirt on the grave of that marriage in a courtroom. And it's done. You're done. You're dead to marriage. Maybe you're dead in addiction. Um, You know, I don't know if this describes you or not, but maybe you can't make it through the whole day without a drink or a hit or a snort. Maybe uh, you think you're much more interesting after you've had a few drinks. The problem is you can't remember what you did that was so interesting the next day. Maybe uh, it's not chemicals that you're addicted to. Maybe your thing is you just stay up half the night surfing from porn site to porn site looking for a quick thrill. And inside, you feel ashamed and trapped and dead. Maybe you're dead in your self-image or your self-esteem. I don't, you know, forget what the mirror says. Forget what the people who love you tell you about how you look. Uh, in, in your mind, you're always too fat or too skinny or too short or too tall or too pimply or too wrinkly. In other words, you're too ugly to be accepted. And so you starve yourself, you'll binge, you'll purge, you'll, you'll undergo countless cosmetic procedures, you'll run like a maniac, work out like a maniac, all to try to achieve this ideal of what you think you should look like. And nothing else is acceptable. And so you're dying inside. Maybe you're dead from debt. You know, you're one of those folks that's got two car payments, a mortgage, three credit cards, you know, the big three, you know, uh, Amex, MasterCard, Visa, and they're all maxed. And uh, the sound of the phone ringing in the evening makes your stomach hurt because you know it's not uh, a long-lost relative. It's somebody calling you wanting their money. And you just feel trapped and alone and desperate and dead. Maybe... You're just sort of dead to life in general. You know, you just kind of wander through life aimlessly. No purpose, no, no real idea of the future, no passion. And, and life for you is just reduced to getting through the school day or surviving the 8 to 5, the 40, 50 hours a week that you work. And, you, you know, you make it home to grab a fast food dinner and watch a couple of sitcoms and then go to bed only to start the whole cycle all over again. And your only hope is that, well, maybe tomorrow will be a little better than today. And that's it. Man, if I just described you or someone you know, I encourage you to pay attention for the next few minutes because I think what I'll share with you can give you some hope. Hope if you're open to a miracle today. I'm going to ask the ushers to come on down. We've got Bibles. If you don't have one, I would encourage you to uh, just give them a high sign. They'll give you one. It's our gift to you Um, because this this story that we're going to look at today is worth reading later in the week and and rereading. And we believe that God's God's word has tremendous power and application in our lives, and so we encourage you to, to take advantage of that. So 
This miracle that we're going to look at today is actually a story, and in the context of the story, there's actually not just one big miracle, but there's, there's lots of miracles in this story. One I know you've definitely heard of probably over the years, and um, there are a few other ones that you might miss if you're not looking for them, so I'm going to try to point them out as we, as we move along. The first is this miracle of courage, and um, right, be- right before we pick up today's story, Jesus had another major confrontation with the religious establishment in Jerusalem. See, he had, com- he had claimed to be one with God, and so in their eyes, he'd moved from this countercultural guy to just a kook, uh, and then from a kook now to this sacrilegious, offensive pain in the neck. And so they'd attempted to stone him, but Jesus had talked him out of that. They were going to arrest him, but he escaped. And so he and his followers, they left Jerusalem, and they were laying low in Judea, around a place where Jesus had been baptized or immersed by this other countercultural figure named John. And so while they're staying there, Jesus gets word, was sent, to him, was sent to him by his friends Mary and Martha, that their brother Lazarus is really, really sick. And um, you've got to understand here that Jesus was homeless. He had no place to call home, and he was constantly in trouble. And so when you're in homeless and trouble follows you around, it's very difficult to find people that will associate with you. It's even more difficult to find people that will call you their friends. But that's what Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were. They claimed Jesus as a friend, and whenever he and his entourage were through Bethany, they would always put him up, they'd feed him, and they were close. So this is kind of interesting. In, uh, in verse 4 of John 11, uh, we read this. When Jesus heard about it, he said, Lazarus' sickness will not end in death. No, it, it happened for the glory of God so that the Son of God will receive glory from this. And so although Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, he stayed where he was for the next two days. And finally, he said to his disciples, well, let's go back to Judea. His disciples objected. Rabbi, they said, only a few days ago, the people in Judea were trying to stone you. Are you going to go there again? And then he said, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, and and now I'm going to go wake him up. And the disciples said, well, Lord, if he's sleeping, he will soon get better. And, And they thought Jesus meant Lazarus was simply sleeping. But Jesus meant that Lazarus had died. So he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sakes, I'm glad I wasn't there for now you will really believe. Come, let's go see him. Thomas, nicknamed the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let's go too and die with Jesus. Let me define courage for you um, because it's, it's miraculous in this, in this little exchange here. Courage is waiting for God in the dark. It's kind of odd that when Jesus got news that his good friend Lazarus uh, was close to death, that he didn't leave immediately. I mean, he waited two more days before he decided to go to Lazarus. I mean, what's the deal? Was he really too busy, or was, uh, did he not care? In verse 4, Jesus says, well, God is working on something really big here, and I, I'm giving him time to set the stage for maximum impact. So, you know, from Jesus' perspective, this was no big deal. Um, he knew how everything would turn out. But from Mary and Martha's perspective, it seemed like Jesus was uncaring or indifferent. It seemed like Jesus had abandoned them when, when they really needed him. Can any of you relate to how they felt? I mean, really. Are you scared right now? Do you feel desperate? Are you sick or hurting and and, and wondering why God is not responding to your pleas, to your prayers? I mean, you've gone from the the polite prayer to you're down on your knees begging at this point. And no response. In my opinion, waiting on God is one one of the biggest, toughest challenges to our faith. Waiting on God. The other thing about courage is courage is being willing to risk everything and trust God. 
as soon as Jesus informed his followers that they were headed back to Jerusalem, um, in the original Greek language, I think they said something like, are you nuts? You know, I mean, come on, Jesus, they just tried to kill you. Why are you going back there? You know, and Jesus says, well, Lazarus is asleep, and I'm going to go wake him up. Well, that really didn't make him feel any better, okay? Um, obviously, these guys were not the brightest crayons in the box, and so they didn't get that Jesus was speaking metaphorically here. So, well, they go, well, um, if he's sleeping, that's good, right? Because, you know, when sick people sleep, they, they get better. So why do we have to go and risk being killed? Jesus kind of sighs and takes him by the hand and helps him connect the dots. He said, guys, let me be plain about this. Lazarus is dead as a doorknob, okay? I'm glad he's dead because this means you guys get another tutoring session. So let's go. You know, Thomas, I love Thomas because he's, he struggles with doubt like I do at times, and I think he's a little cynical, you know. So he says, I don't think it sounded as noble as he said it then as when I read it then. I think it was more like, great, let's all go and die with Jesus, you know, I think is kind of how Thomas approached it. Here's the deal. God takes risks to help us, and God expects us to take risks and following him. It's a risky proposition all the way around. FYI, when you're hurting here, uh, God is responding. When you are hurting, God is responding. He will not let anything stop him from responding to your pain. Now, it may not look like uh, you want it to. It may not be as you expected. It may be on a different timetable. But don't, don't believe for a minute that God is not responding to your pain. He is. The personal cost of helping is worth it to God. It's worth so much to God, it was worth the life of his son to help you and I when we're in trouble and when we're hurting. See, Jesus was actually glad for the death of Lazarus, not because he wanted something bad to happen to Lazarus, to Lazarus or, or that he wanted to cause Mary and Martha pain and anguish. Jesus was glad that Lazarus was dead because it gave another opportunity for God to demonstrate all that God can do, for God to demonstrate his incredible power. So let me ask you, can you hang on a little bit longer in your pain, anticipating that God is at work, that God is about to do something amazing? Just hang on. If you're at the end of your rope, just tie a knot and hang on. Don't give up. Here's the miracle that I want you to see here. All sarcasm aside, Thomas actually displayed some real courage here. He displayed courage under fire. See, real courage is not the absence of fear. It's not. Real courage is, is, is being aware of the very worst that can happen to you, how much pain it's going to cause you if you do the right thing, and then going ahead and doing the right thing anyway. That's real courage. See, what if right now you were so afraid to trust other people, to open your heart to other relationships, to allow other people into your life and to share your life with them? But you know that that's the right thing to do. You know you've got to open your heart and share lives together. That's, that's what being a Christ follower is all about. And so real courage means that you move ahead in spite of your fear, in spite of the mistrust you have for other people, and you open yourself up one more time. Your marriage right now is, is beyond painful, and everyone knows it. And whether you're staying together for money, whether you're staying together for the kids' sake, whatever it is, it's not working well. And the right thing to do here is to get help. The right thing to do is to make an appointment tomorrow morning with a marriage counselor or to go to the family life seminar or to tell your small group that the struggles that you're having or to look at each other and say, we've got to do something. We've got to work this out. Or to take a risk again and try walking the trail of all the things that cause you guys to fall in love together in the first place. 
But you know that's going to be difficult. That's going to be painful. It's going to cost money. It's going to mean I have to set down some pride. It means that I'm going to have to forgive someone again for the same thing again. But it's the right thing to do. And so real courage says, I'm going to do this anyway. I'm going to fight to save my marriage. Maybe this addiction has got you by the back of the neck. And right now you feel pinned to the mat. And the right thing to do here is, again, ask for help. Tell someone you're struggling. Go to an AA or an NA meeting. Go, you know, to, to, to whatever you need to do. Put, put an Internet filter on your computer. Talk to your spouse. Whatever you've got to do, that's the right thing to do. But to do the right thing means it's going to cost you. It may cost you some time, some money, embarrassment. You may have to really humiliate yourself and, and before you get better. But real courage means you take steps away from addiction anyway. That's real courage. You know, you're up to your eyeballs in debt, but you really want that plasma TV, and you've already figured out how you can afford it. I mean, you know, who needs two lungs, you know? Who needs two kidneys? You've worked out a strategy. I mean, payments don't start for 18 months, right? So maybe if uh, the right thing to do is to stop spending money you don't have. The right thing to do is to ask for some help in establishing a budget and living by a budget. The right thing to do is not to put your family's future at risk to get what you want right now. The right thing to do is to honor God with your finances and to help other people. But to do the right thing, it's going to be risky. That means you're going to have to set your I wants aside for a time. It means you're going to actually have to be disciplined. It means you may actually have to go and get some outside help, like the financial peace thing, or talk with a financial counselor, or somebody, help me, I'm out of, my wallet's out of control. Real courage means you do the right thing, even though it's going to be painful and difficult. Can you summon the, follow, the courage to follow Christ even when it's difficult? Let me ask you, what are you willing to risk to follow Jesus? He risked everything to help others. What are you willing to risk to follow him? There's this whole miracle of faith I want you to notice here in John 11. A little bit further, uh, verse 17 says, When Jesus arrived at Bethany, he was told Lazarus had already been in his grave for four days. When Martha got word that Lazarus was coming, she went to meet him. But Mary stayed in the house. And Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd only been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus told her, your brother will rise again. Well, yes, Martha said, he will rise when everyone else rises at the last day. And Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live, even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never, ever die. Martha, do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I have always believed you're the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who has come into the world from God. And then she returned to Mary. She called Mary aside from the mourners and told her, the teacher is here and he wants to see you. And so Mary immediately went to him. Jesus had stayed outside the village at the place where Martha met him. And when the people who were at the house consoling Mary saw her leave so hastily, they assumed she was going to Lazarus' grave to weep. So they followed her there. And when Mary arrived and saw Jesus, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if only you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Okay, here's the deal. Jesus hits the edge of town. And word gets to Mary and Martha. Now think of what they've been through at this point. They have personally witnessed many examples of Jesus' power to heal people. They've seen him give deaf people back to hearing. They've seen the blind receive their sight. They've seen lame people walk again. They've seen demon-possessed people being healed. 
They've heard stories of even greater things like him calming a storm or him, you know, feeding over 5,000 people with the biblical equipment of a Happy Meal. You know, five dinner rolls and two sardines, okay? And so they asked their friend for help because their brother's sick. And you know what they got? Zip. Zero. Nada. Nothing. Silence. Not even when Lazarus was feverish and, 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 and cramping and doubling over and screaming in pain. Not when he was suffering to draw a breath. And even as he rattled trying to catch his last breath and failed, nothing. Silence. For four days now, Lazarus has been dead and they've been staring at the four walls of their home. And still, no word from Jesus. Here's the miracle. Disappointment and faith can coexist. These ladies prove that. See, what do you do when you're trying to trust God and and the circumstances are difficult? I mean, your faith is always going to wrestle with disappointment and doubt because that's the way this world works. You see, the sisters initially reacted to Jesus in two very different ways. Martha leaves home immediately, goes to meet Jesus, but Mary stays there. I think it's interesting that the woman that Scripture records as, as is being famous for all these public displays of affection for Jesus, you know, pouring perfume on his feet and drying him with her hair and, and letting her tears fall on his feet and just extravagant displays of love, now stays away. Why? Is she hurt? Disillusioned? Angry? <laughs> yeah. Was she exhausted from grief? Yes. So uh, both sisters expressed their disappointment. You know, they both say, Jesus, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. You know, translate what they're saying. They're saying, Jesus, this did not work out like it was supposed to. You did not do what I asked you to do. I'm disappointed. I'm hurt. I think it's interesting to note that both of these ladies were so secure in their relationship with Jesus that they could be that honest with him. They could be brutally honest. So how many of you struggle with disappointment with God? All of us are going to react differently, but it's crucial that we're honest with him. It's crucial that we love him enough, that we're willing, we're willing to risk everything and be honest and say, God, I'm hurting. God, I'm disappointed. God, I'm angry with you. God, you didn't do this the way I wanted you to. But here's the miracle. Bitterly disappointed, both sisters hang on to their faith. Mary, excuse me, Martha leads with her intellect. You know, she walks out and says, Jesus, I know, I'm disappointed that my brother's dead, but I know even now, God will give you whatever you ask for. Jesus, I, even now, even as disappointed as I am, I'm hanging on to the fact that you are who you said you were, that God really did send you from heaven for us, that you are the Messiah. I'm hanging on. Mary comes out. She can't even form the words with her intellect. All she can do is hang on to him and cry. Whether you leave with your intellect or whether you can't even form the words, you just cry. Hang on, tie a knot, tie a knot at the end of your rope, and hang on. Don't quit. Hang on to your faith. Then there's this little miracle of tears. Verse 33 says, when Jesus saw Mary weeping and saw the other people wailing with her, a deep anger welled up within him, and he was deeply troubled. Where have you put him, he asked them. And they told him, well, Lord, come and see. And then Jesus wept. When this passage refers to Jesus being angry and deeply uh, troubled, it was translated from a Greek word uh, called embrimasthai. I can't even say it. Embrimasthai. 
which was used two different ways at that time. One way in Brimislai was used was to um, sort of refer to a stern rebuke or, or anger. So I, I read that, I thought, well, why was Jesus angry? You know, I don't think he was angry at their sorrow because that doesn't fit the character of Jesus that you see in the rest of Scripture. I believe that uh, Lazarus' death reminded him of how far this world had fallen from God's original design. It wasn't supposed to be this way. There wasn't supposed to be this pain and suffering and anguish and separation from God. That's not the way it was supposed to work out. But sin entered the world and blew everything up. And I believe Jesus was reminded of that and was angry. And Brimastai was also used to describe a horse snorting. And that indicated an involuntary response. I'm not going to demonstrate, by the way. So, uh, In other words, Jesus was so overcome by several emotions at this point. So he was so overcome that he just wept. Why did Jesus cry? I mean, he was no stranger to death. I mean, he'd already demonstrated in other places that he could already bring dead people back to life. So what's the deal? Don't miss this. God grieves for us, and God grieves with us. God grieves for us and with us. Scripture only records two examples of Jesus crying. One is here. He's weeping for his friends. And another is found in Luke 13 where he is weeping over the city of Jerusalem. He's weeping for the entire nation of Israel because they've gone so far from God. In my opinion, the tears of God are an incredible thing. They are a miracle. The fact that there is a God who is powerful enough to create the universe, yet who's tender enough that his heart breaks for you and for me. God does not just leave us alone with our burdens. God joins us in them. God weeps for us because of the sin that wrecks our lives, that wrecks our families, that destroys the world around us, that breaks his heart. And God weeps with us when we're hurt by the pain, sometimes by our own stupid decisions, sometimes by the stupid decisions of others, sometimes by disappointment and struggle in this life. God weeps with us. And finally, in verse 38, we run across the last little miracle I want to point out to you today. Actually, it's not a little one, it's a big one. Beginning in verse 38, it says, Jesus was still angry as he arrived at the tomb, a cave with a stone rolled across its entrance. Roll the stone aside, Jesus told him. But Martha, the dead man's sister, protested, Lord, he's been dead for four days. The smell will be terrible. And Jesus responded, didn't I tell you that you would see God's glory if you believe? So they rolled the stone aside. And then Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, thank you for hearing me. You always hear me. But I said it out loud for the sake of all these people standing here so that they will believe that you sent me. Then Jesus shouted, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet bound in grave clothes, his face wrapped in a headcloth. And Jesus told them, unwrap him, let him go. This is an amazing miracle. But again, Jesus had done this before. I mean, there was a guy named Jairus, a very important official, and he had a daughter who died, and Jesus brought her back to life. There was a widow who, whose only son had died, and she was alone in the world, and Jesus brought that boy back to life and gave him back to his mother. So what sets this miracle apart from the others? I mean, what do we take away from this? I think the difference is, here is time. The other healings occurred almost immediately after those people died. And some scholars even speculate that maybe they weren't really dead. Maybe they were in a coma, in a death-like state. But um, in this case, in that climate, after four days in a tomb, oh yeah, Lazarus was really dead. And he was starting to decompose. 
what people, what Jesus was prepared to do in front of these people was so shocking. It was so far outside the box, they couldn't get their brains around it. Martha even tried to talk him out of it. Jesus, please don't do this. I mean, he's dead. I mean, please don't open that tomb. He's begun to rot. It's been four days. It's going to smell really bad. But Jesus proceeds anyway, and the stone is moved. Maybe uh, you guys can identify with Lazarus. From your perspective, everything is dark. Everything is dark. I mean, relationships in your life are dark. You're afraid to trust anyone. You're afraid to open yourself up because you don't want to get hurt again. Your marriage is dark. It's over. You can't stand the side of each other. You don't want to be in the same room together. You think there's no hope. Addiction has got you and won't let you go. And you think there is no way out. I'm always going to be a user. I'm always going to be doing this. There's no way my marriage can survive me being honest about what's going on after dark. Your self-esteem is in shreds. You think no one can ever love me. I'm not good enough. I'm not pretty enough. I'm not handsome enough. There is no way out of this debt that we're in. There's no way out of debt. I mean, we can't afford hamburger. We might as well have steak. Let's just keep piling it on. Let's just keep figuring out a way to pile on more debt because I want more stuff. There's no way out. You think, this is it. There is nothing more exciting in this life. I have nothing else to live for. And it seems that it's over. It's done. It's finished. But what if someone named Jesus comes into your life? What if he comes in this picture? What if he refers, what if he refuses to leave you for dead? What if Jesus wants to meet you right where you are? And he tells you that now he can make all things new. How many of you can uh, identify with Lazarus? But Jesus only said three words. Lazarus, come out. And those three words completely redefined what is possible and impossible. By the power of God, what's impossible? Well, nothing. And by the power of God, what is possible? Everything. Take this away today. Remember this. What was dead can live again. What was dead can live again. If the power of God can bring life back to a four-day-old corpse, who or what is too far gone to change? The story of Lazarus is, is there to show us that it's never, ever, ever too late for God to work if we're open to a miracle. Who or what is too late to save? Every single person in this room, all the people in your life that you love and you care about, that you work with, every last person on this planet, is all they've all been offered the same thing. A second chance, a new beginning, a new life. Jesus offers all of us forgiveness for the sin that separated us from God. He has provided a bridge for us to make our way back to God, to reenter into a relationship with him. And within the context of that relationship, Jesus offers to walk with us, with me, with you, giving us the strength to break free completely of the sin that wrecked our life, that's hurting those that we love, and the strength to endure some really painful circumstances, to overcome some gigantic obstacles as we pursue our relationship with him. 
Maybe you've never consciously responded in faith to Jesus before, and you have some questions. I mean, who wouldn't? Maybe you are already a believer, but right now you're in a very, very difficult time in your life, and the pain and disappointment is huge, and right now the pain seems more real to you than God. Hang on. We would love to talk with you, to pray with you, to cry with you, and to help you. I would direct you after the service if that describes you. Just go to the theater next to this one. There's some very nice people, some kind people that hang around there that would love to sit and listen and talk and pray and to help you find some answers to the questions that you have. Just believe. Just offer up what little bit of faith you have, whether it comes from your brain or whether you're just hanging on with your heart and respond. Jesus is calling you to come out of this dead-end life that you're living. He wants to inject new life into a tired and worn-out faith. He wants you to take off this old life that you're in right now. Take it off. Leave it behind and move on with him. Jesus is calling. Come out. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for Christ. Thank you for the power that you have, that you can bring new life where now we only see death. You can bring new possibilities to what we see as impossible or unwinnable. Thank you for not leaving our side, but for coming to us in our hour of need. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Thank you all for coming today, for braving the elements and coming out. And uh, please drop your cards in the welcome bucket on your way out.